You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matis Weingast. Today is the 15th day in the month of November, third day in the month of Kislev, 5776. Thanks for joining me this morning. Welcome back. Hope you had a great week and a great Shabbos. The uh, temperature outside right now in the New York, New Jersey area is 36 degrees and clear going up to a high of about 60 degrees and sunny. And then going down to 44 degrees and clear tonight in Jerusalem, it's 76 degrees, partly cloudy, going down to a low of 60 degrees and expected showers overnight. As you've all heard, I'm sure, about an hour before Shabbos here in the New Jersey area, we heard about a shooting in Paris. That's pretty much all we heard about until more details emerged of the horrific attacks on the Paris population, which resulted in at least 129 dead and Hundreds wounded, many critically. The uh, coordinated attacks, as we've learned, uh, happened at, I believe, eight locations, occurred nearly simultaneously, and at different venues, miles apart, in some cases, including uh, restaurants, a concert hall, a mall, and a stadium. According to the reports, all the terrorists were wearing homicide vests, uh, fortunately, if we can say that, uh, some of the terrorists were unable to gain access to the stadium due to the security checkpoints, and uh, they blew themselves up outside the venue, killing one person. Certainly, our hearts and prayers and thoughts go out to the victims and their families in this, uh, this absolutely horrific, horrific event. There is so much on the media and the news about it. I'm not going to go into all the different things here, and um, certainly there will be more in the coming days and responsibilities and discussions and, you know, everything that uh, can be said about it. I'm sure Nachum will be discussing it more during the week. And, uh, you know, as I said, our, our hearts and uh, prayers go out to the victims and their families of this horrific attack in Paris. This is not the first of its kind, and uh, we know all too well what goes on in uh, in our neck of the woods, so to speak. By that I mean, of course, Israel. Uh, and uh, here it is now, even more so in uh, in another country. Uh, so, you know, we'll see we'll see what happens over the coming days and weeks as this is discussed. Uh, it's seven oh eight in the morning. Uh, my guest will include today uh, two people. We're going to be joined uh, in the eight o'clock hour. Top of the 8 o'clock hour, I think it's going to be, Dove Mizell, who is from United Rescue, will join us. He'll give us an update on the um, 
on the live start of United Rescue in Jersey City, which took place on Thursday night. We'll find out what's going on with that and uh, how it's been. United Rescue is uh, a program, a community-based EMS program, the first of its kind in the nation in terms of being in a community-based city and sponsored by the city. Uh, certainly our listeners are familiar with the Hatzalah program and the Hatzalah program in the uh, United States and Israel. And this is the first time that such a uh, system has been enacted in a city in the United States. Again, as uh, based in the city and part of the EMS system. So we'll uh, we'll talk to him and find out uh, how it went, how the training went, and uh, since they went live on Thursday night, if they've responded to calls already. So that'll take place at eight o'clock, and then our uh, our guest of the uh, our main guest of the show will be Stephen Pease, who's an author. His latest book is the debate over Jewish achievement, exploring the nature and nurture of human accomplishment. It's a very interesting book. We'll talk about that. It's a follow-up to the book he wrote a couple of years back called The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement, which is uh, basically an encyclopedia of of, uh, achievement among our people in many different areas. Tremendous uh, tremendous work there. So we'll talk to him. That'll also be in the 8 o'clock hour. Morning is coming up at 7.30. I don't believe we're going to have the news from Israel today. Yeah, I, we have to give uh, Hannah Julian the day off, so that will uh, that will be supplanted by one of our interviews. We're going to go to music and uh, morning chizuk, as I said, coming up at seven thirty. Thanks for listening, everyone. Glad you could join us here on uh, JM Sunday exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Liebe Schmelzer here on JM Sunday. We're going to go right to Rabbi Goldwasser, who has some special words this morning about the situation uh, in Paris um, that occurred on Friday. We'll go to Morning Physic, and then we'll uh, give you a wrap-up and tell you uh, a wrap-up of the first half hour and tell you what's coming up here on the rest of JM Sunday. Right now, it's time for Morning Chizuk, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, Lezecha Nishmas Rav Zev, Rav Yosef Alevi, and Esther Bas, Rav Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in Kriyashima, V'nibar Tabam, we should speak in Torah, V'shiv Ducha V'visecho, V'lech when you're in your home, and when you're on the road, V'shach when you lie down, and when you rise up. The great Hasidic rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Avork, commented, Why does it say, when you lie down first, and then, and when you rise up? The great Vorker says, that it doesn't specifically mean, only when a person lies down, and when a person gets up, but it can also be, a state of being, our matzav, our situation. Bishach b'cha, when things are down, when it seems to be dark out, those times when the galus becomes the most painful, it is precisely then that a person should look to Torah, to look to our source of our entire life, and derive inspiration and the chizuk to go on. The entire civilized world is reeling, from the tragedy that happened in France. Terrorists, in a cowardly act, killed innocent good people, law-abiding citizens. The world has to take note, because things have gone out of control. Klal Yisrael especially feels the pain, because we know what it is to go through prejudice. We understand very well the pains of Golos. We are quite knowledgeable in the dynamics of hate. We need to unify all of the world together in the fight against terrorism. In our Shemona Esrei, in our silent prayer of 18 blessings, we ask for many things, many brachos, many blessings. We ask for knowledge, we ask for good weather, we ask for parnasa, livelihood. However, the very last thing that we ask for is peace. We say we can have all the blessings in the world, but they don't mean anything without peace. We all unite and pray together. We stand strong and unified with France and all of its good people. We unite and call to the world over to stand up and to fight terrorism, to remove rishus from the world. May it be that evil ceases to exist and is cleared and obliterated from our lives. May we hear of Besuros Tovos, Yeshuos V'nechamos, for us and for the entire world. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser, for those very important and strong and meaningful words on this uh, Sunday morning following the uh, the horrific uh, tragedy and killings that occurred in Paris on Friday night. Just as Shabbos was beginning in our area here, about an hour before we received the first notifications of uh, 
what was occurring, that there was a shooting in Paris. And that's pretty much uh, what we heard until the news came out later that there were about eight coordinated attacks simultaneously taking place at different Paris locations, some of them miles apart, including at restaurants, concert hall, a mall, a stadium, and other areas, leaving at least 129 people dead so far. Hundreds wounded, many critically still. Uh, I believe the total was about over 300 who were wounded and uh, are still in, some are, of whom are still in critical uh, states. Uh, it, reports I heard this morning were, could have been worse in the sense that uh, some of the uh, terrorists, who, by the way, were all wearing suicide or homicide vests, uh, as we call them, uh, some of them couldn't make it into the stadium where there were 80,000 people there uh, because of security. Security caught the uh, caught those terrorists, saw that they had the vests on, and the uh, terrorists detonated themselves before getting into the stadium. Uh, so that could have been uh, even much worse. Our hearts and, and our prayers and thoughts go out to the victims and their families, of course. As Rabbi Goldwasser just says, we know all too well what the people there in France are going through, and uh, we certainly have to have a, a greater wake-up call than, than ever before on what can be done to uh, stem this tide of terror. Uh, there'll be more about it, I'm sure, in the days and weeks to come. So, uh, you know, we, we hope that uh, that the people who are injured right now will get well soon and there won't be any more fatalities. From that, it's 7:36 in the morning here on JM Sunday Eastern Time. We're going to be playing some more music until eight o'clock. We won't have the news from Israel this morning. Kana Julian is uh, traveling, and we have to give her the morning off this morning. Um, certainly, the news uh, from Paris dominated uh, the news cycle. Has uh, continues to dominate the news cycle, and even in Israel, where Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, sent uh, condolences and uh, sympathy and uh, solidarity feelings to the French people and to the people of Paris. Um, probably won't see that in the mainstream media, unfortunately. That's the way it goes. Uh, so at 8 o'clock this morning, schedule is that we're going to be joined by Dove Mizell. He's in charge of uh, setting up, he set up the United Rescue Service in uh, Jersey City, a community-based EMS uh, service, first of its kind in the nation, sponsored by a city. We all know it as uh, as Hatsala ambulance units within uh, certain cities in the United States. This is the first time it's going to uh, it's going to be used in a citywide coordinated effort. So we'll talk about that for a few minutes, and then at about 8:15, I'll be joined by Stephen Lps, who is an author. His latest book is Debate Over Jewish Achievement. Excuse me, The Debate Over Jewish Achievement, Exploring the Nature and Nurture of Human Accomplishment. Uh, quite interesting book. We'll uh, talk a bit about that, about his research, what prompted him to write uh, this book, and the one previous called The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement. Stephen Pease is not Jewish, and uh, one would wonder why he's writing this. It's a quite interesting story. We'll hear from him. I look forward to that very, very much. And uh, as always, I want to thank Stuart Schnee for uh, getting us together with him and uh, linking us up with some very great guests over the last uh, number of months and continue to do so. 
So uh, thanks, Stephen. He's a public relations expert. And uh, then we'll have some more music uh, if there is time. Uh, if there is time. So let's get back to the music. You know what? Let me give you a rundown also of the day. After this show, there'll be a great music stream as always. Mark Zomick is responsible for that. We thank him. Uh, there'll be Encore programming at 11 o'clock today. There'll be Encore of the Z Report with Yossi Zweig, an Encore of SNS, Saturday Night Seagull with Avrami. That takes place at 1 o'clock. And an Encore of the Top 9 and 9 with Yossi Zweig from 3 to 4. And then there will be a first-run edition of The Court Report with Elliot Weiselberg at 7 o'clock. And uh, Elliot did send me the information. I do have that... Uh, he recorded his show live at the 2015 Cooper Memphis Invitational Basketball Tournament. So he'll be talking about um, the players and the games, of course. He has interviews with uh, athletic directors, coaches, uh, players, and uh, tournament organizer Josh Kahana. Plus he'll have the scores and results from the weekend of action. So that's taking place tonight at 7 o'clock, exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and the NSN app. We're going to go to Mila Shemilai. goes back a number of years in the Miami Boys Choir. Slow song, medium slow song. And uh, that'll take us up to, that music will take us up to uh, 8 o'clock and we'll have our first guest. Thanks for joining me, everyone, here on JM Sunday, exclusively on the Nachum Siegel Network.
David Gabe with Veniska, we will um, we will interrupt his uh, his song for now, and we'll get back to it perhaps later. Uh, I am joined on the air right now by Rabbi Moshe Lewin, who is the head of the Conference of European Rabbis, and uh, he is joining us to talk about the situation in Paris and what the Jewish community is doing as a response and how it's reacting today in um, in Paris. Rabbi Lewin, welcome to JM Sunday. Well, thanks for calling us. Uh, yeah, we, as you know, we are in shock of what happened yesterday and the Jewish community yesterday uh, made all the, all the synagogue well uh, open, uh, even if there was a problem and we didn't know exactly what happened, but uh, we know that we had to open our synagogue and uh, with the security. As um, as we met it this morning uh, about Talmud Torah, uh, we're all open in Paris. Excellent. Uh, with security, with security, with police or military, but all Talmud Torah were open. Wow. When when this first occurred, it was uh, uh, Erev Shabbat here in the New York, New Jersey area when we first heard about this. Uh, it was later at night, about 9.20, I think, in your area. It, it must have been overwhelming. What were your first thoughts when you heard about this? We we heard uh, during the night, but uh, only from people, not everybody, uh, because uh, for us, Shabbos already started. So we were uh, uh, people from the security of the synagogues uh, came to us to, to tell us exactly what happened. But uh, most most people knew only by coming in the shul in the morning. So um, uh, we we made a special prayer, prayer in all synagogue of Paris when uh, we know we knew we we had uh, security. We knew also from the police who, who were uh, telling us what's going on uh, during Shabbat. And when. But, uh, when you um, opened up these synagogues on Shabbat morning yesterday, uh, were, did you already have extra security in place that the city and the uh, the country gave you right away to watch the areas? 
uh, normally from uh, already from uh, last January from the attack in Paris and the Perkasha, we had security in all synagogues, in all front of all synagogues during uh, already the ninth month. We had police or military uh, in all synagogues of France. So we had already uh, we we didn't have more security. But uh, we we had securities enough for what was going on, so um, that's why we maintained and we didn't close any synagogues uh, yesterday. That is beautiful, Rabbi Moshe Lewin, the head of the Conference of European Rabbis, is on the air with me this morning. Rabbi, what is taking place today in the Jewish community in Paris? Today uh, at uh, in the at the evening at uh, o'clock in the evening. We're making a big ceremony in the big synagogue of La Victoire, which is the big synagogue of Paris, and with the chief rabbi of France, Rabbi Chaim Corsia. Uh, so we'll make uh, 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 a ceremony with Tehillim, with uh, um, speeches of the chief rabbi of France, and we will uh, waiting a lot of people in Paris this evening. Excellent. Excellent. I know that you're very busy this morning. I, I today it's afternoon already there. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me on the air. I wish you, uh, you know, Hatzlacha with the program today, and certainly um, safety and security in the days and weeks to come. That's what we hope, and thanks for calling us. Thanks for your solidarity. You're welcome. Hatzlacha. We'll talk to you later. Okay. With pleasure. Bye bye. Rabbi Moshe Lewin, the uh, chief, the head of the Conference of European Rabbis, and uh, the secretary to the French chief rabbi, uh, was just on the air with me talking about the fact that uh, all the synagogues were open yesterday in uh, Paris, and uh, amid, of course, heightened security, and as he said, security that's been in place uh, all along since last year's attacks in January in Paris. And uh, all the synagogues were open. They said special prayers. And uh, tonight there is going to be, or it's afternoon there now, so in a few hours there's going to be a special uh, prayer service uh, for, in, within the uh, the great synagogue. And um, that will be for the community in Paris, France. Uh, my thanks again to Rabbi Lewin for joining me on the air in such short notice. Uh, and, uh, telling us what, uh, you know, what went on and what's going on in the community now. We'll go back to the music and then at uh, 8 o'clock, uh, my guest is going to be Dove Mizell of United Rescue and we'll talk about what's been going on in Jersey City. We're gonna go back to just, actually no, no, we have to go to another song here. So, uh, we'll go to, uh, oh, Sue Sharim from Nachas here on JM Sunday. Thanks for listening. You never know. What's going to come up when you're listening to JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network?
to you, Sherry, and by Nachas here on JM Sunday, Matas Weingast with you. We are on the Nachum Siegel Network, uh, and you never know what's going to happen. We were able to get, as you just heard a few minutes ago, we were able to make contact with uh, the uh, head of the um, the uh, European, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the uh, Conference of European Rabbis, the head of that, Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Lewin, who joined us to talk about the situation in Paris and what is being done today. There's going to be a prayer service at the Great Synagogue in Paris later today. So I'm glad he was able to join us, unfortunately, under the the terrible circumstances and the terrible tragedy, but um, but uh, it is something that uh, you know, we felt was important to try to get somebody on, and you know we appreciate his joining us in this very busy, hectic, and uh, and tragic day for the people of Paris, and certainly felt by the Jewish community in Paris and around the world. Uh, my guest now is uh, is somebody who has been working tirelessly over the last many months. If not longer, we'll find out, uh, to set up United Rescue, which is a community-based EMS service in Jersey City, New Jersey, the first of its kind in the nation. I want to welcome Dove Mizell to JM Sunday. How are you? Good morning, Dove. Good morning, Bokatov. Thanks for joining me. Now, anybody out there who knows what Hatsala is certainly understands what this program is, and of course it is modeled, as we've heard on uh, Nachum's show before, on the um, United Hatsala program in Israel, and certainly anybody in the United States, including right here in my hometown of Elizabeth Union County, where I'm a dispatcher for Hatzalah, knows what Hatzalah does, knows the concept behind it of getting critical care and people to a scene faster than most EMS services are able to do, basically because we send out people to the scene immediately, followed up by an ambulance. Sometimes it's simultaneous, sometimes it's not. But people get to the scene uh, quickly. And uh, in Jersey City, from what I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, the general response time was about six minutes to get an ambulance there. You're hoping to cut down first response time to three minutes. So tell us about the program. You had your first class. How's it going? Well, it's going fantastic, and we're very excited. I came in especially to America NAFTA. Like you said, we've been working on this almost a year already now. Uh, when the mayor of uh, Jersey City uh, approached us about a year ago, uh, Mayor Stephen Fulop, who saw what United Atala is doing in Israel and is familiar, obviously, with uh, what Atala does in the Jewish communities here in America, and he said, I want this for the people in my city. Um, and actually, it, like you said, Jersey City does have the best response time for public EMSs in America of around six and a half minutes. And he said, I want to reduce that to three minutes. So... Basically, um, he wanted to adopt the concept, the concept of United Atala, which is um, having volunteers in the community. You know, it's a community-based emergency response volunteer program, taking people from the community, training them, equipping them with the good equipment, um, putting the, um, the communication app, the emergency app on their phones, uh, the Life Compass Now Force app on their phone, and they're dispatching them to the calls when things happen in their neighborhood. And... Um, it's very exciting because he managed to actually overcome, you know, bureaucracy and liability issues and everything. And we were very happy to graduate Thursday night with the first 51st volunteers that completed their training, which was about, um, 60 hours of classroom training and another 25 hours of ride-alongs on the local ambulances there. 
And this morning, as we speak, they are getting organized to start their responding in the community. Wow. And you just said that there were 50 people in the first graduating class. I, I could imagine we could talk about all the bureaucracy that went on um, and getting the community uh, getting together on this. Uh, but I imagine that since it's community-based and it's operating through the 911 system, of course, the Jersey City Medical Center is involved in this and the EMS system is fully integrated and accepting of this. Absolutely. So the beautiful thing about it is that uh, when the mayor came to us about a year ago, um, he understood the concept immediately, and he introduced us to the director of the of the Jersey City Medical Center Hospital and the Barnabas Medical Center, which is the one in charge of the ambulances in Jersey City, and we worked full collaboration um, all the way. We had everyone on board on the round table with, uh, from the head of the EMS there, the hospital. And everyone, we built a curriculum together. They trained them. Actually, they ride along in their ambulances, and they're dispatched by the 911 system. They're essentially they're 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 certified and dispatched by them. We're we're all we're bringing to the table is the concept, the technology, and and the know-how of how to activate volunteers, which was they were unfamiliar with. Right. And we're working together amazingly, and and it, it really is beautiful. Dove myself of United Rescue is my guest here this morning. Uh, looking at the pictures that I saw the other night of the graduating class, you certainly have a very diverse group, and Jersey City has a very diverse population, uh, everyone across the board. I mean, I saw people there who are obviously very Jewish. I saw people there who are obviously very uh, Islamic, who are uh, anywhere in between. Uh, it must have taken some work to get everyone together and uh, really just be on the same page with this. Um, actually, well, like you said, diversity, I think that's what represents Jersey City more than anything, or at least that's how the mayor presented it to us a year ago. And as we got into it, we really saw that the, the fabric of the community there is really, they have like 15 different languages. They have, they, they, they refer to themselves as a city with the most official languages spoken <laughs> in America. Wow. And when they went out to the community, when we started working on advertising and you know, on social media and so on and so forth, um, the response was amazing. And what we did was um, we mapped out the city, and we had over 500 people apply Ooh. to volunteer. And we mapped out the city so to make sure to get volunteers from every part geographically of the city. And the backgrounds were amazing. Like you said, we have uh, Hasidic people. We have um, a Muslim. We have uh, from the Hispanic community, from the, uh, from the uh, Sikh community. It, I would say literally from every walk of life, that you can find in America, basically, which more or less represents what we have in United Atala in Israel. Right, absolutely. Uh, uh, what is your goal in terms of the number of people to be able to, um, to the goal, the number of people to be trained, uh, fully trained, so that you have and you get to this uh, faster response time on a 24-7 period? So uh, the goal is to get to uh, approximately 300 volunteers in Jersey City. Whoa. Wow. We are, like we said, 51 volunteers graduated the cohort one on Thursday night. Mm -hmm. And in two weeks' time, we're starting training of another three classes, in total of 75 additional volunteers will be starting their training. And we have over, I would say, nearly 900 applicants now, which are in the process of, uh, uh, you know, uh, background checks, et cetera, right. and everything, you know, to make sure that everyone is uh, on, on board as far sure. as uh, all the regulations. And, and it, it's good. Is this um, very exciting? Can people who only work in Jersey City also join, or does it have to be people who live in Jersey City? No, it's absolutely people who. Some of the group, part of the group, actually 
are from the business district area there that we know do not live there but spend between 10 and whatever hours a day sure. there. And let's, let's remember that Jersey City population is about a quarter of a million people, which during the day raises about 500, primarily in the business district. So it's actually an, a, a big added value because during the night there aren't many people that live there. Right. But during the day, there's a lot of people that might need their help there. Right, absolutely. And uh, you know, uh, Jame and the AM radio show is based in Jersey City at uh, WFMU. And uh, you know it's something that we know about. Uh, Mayor Fulop has been a guest on Nachum Siegel's show many times and is a, a, a tremendous supporter of, of innovative uh, changes in the uh, community also, which is great. Uh Finally, if somebody wants to get in touch with United Rescue to join or to, to uh, you know partner up, what should they do? Well, they can just go to www.unitedrescue.us. U.S. And okay. All, uh, correct. U.S. And they can get the information there. And uh, if someone uh, is familiar with United Atzala, um, so they can go to the United Atzala website and get information from there as well. I mean, I, I think overall, looking at it as, as Putting this year to a summary, it's, it's an amazing Kiddush Hashem, what is happening there. You see this diverse population wearing the, the, the symbol of United, United Rescue, which is the same symbol as United Rescue, the big Magen David, and they proudly wear it, and they even say it. Wow. They even say it. I actually saw on the Facebook page of one of the participants yesterday, I was referred to it, one of the Muslim volunteers there, she wrote, she, she's thanking United Atoll of Israel for bringing this. Wow. That, what's more Kiddush Hashem than that? Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you, if there were more... Uh, if there were more people like that, maybe what happened in Paris would not have been, uh, you know, would not have taken place. Who knows? But uh, we, need, we need we need to add more light. That yeah. is what we need to do. A- absolutely, we need to this was a, it, it, as you said, a tremendous kiddush Hashem. I know that this has been uh, written about and uh, and shown in the media in this area at least. Yeah, tremendous, tremendous coverage, very positive coverage, and I'm sure that it'll work well. And knowing what goes on in Hatzalah and EMS. I know that this is going to improve the system even more, and I wish you Hatzlacha. And I guess what I could say is I hope you don't get too much business, but if you do, uh, <laughs> at least you have people that are trained out there to respond right away. That's right. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Dov Mizal, United Rescue. Thanks for being my guest here on JM Sunday. Have a great day. Thank you. Uh, that is... Uh, it's great to hear about this uh, amazing program, and we'll we'll hear in the days and weeks to come how it's going out, how it's coming out. Uh, we're going to go to some music, and then I'll be joined by Stephen Pease, author of the debate over Jewish achievement, right here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> Yeah. 
with Adon Alam here on JM Sunday. Matis Weingast with you. It's uh, 818 in the morning. And I want to say hi to listener Morris Esses who's listening right now to the show. Thank you so much for being a loyal listener and for uh, joining us on Sunday mornings. It's much appreciated. Thank you. And uh, we had a busy morning this morning so far. Uh, my thanks uh, to the uh, the head of the Conference of European Rabbis, Rabbi Moshe Lewin, for joining me this morning in the uh, late, latter part of the 7 o'clock hour to talk about the situation and the terrible uh, tragedy in Paris that occurred on Sunday night, on, on Friday night. And uh, he spoke about the, uh, the fact that all the synagogues were open in Paris yesterday, of course, amid heightened security and security that they've had in place ever since the attacks last January. But all the synagogues were open, and tonight there will be a prayer vigil at the um, and a prayer service at the Great Synagogue in Paris. So my thanks to Rabbi Lewin for joining me, and uh, of course to um, to Dove Mizell of United Rescue for talking about the launch of United Rescue in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. So you never know what you're going to get here on uh, on JM Sunday. Uh, you never, never know. Okay, now it is time for another special guest. Uh, first time I've had this person on the air. His name is Stephen Pease. He's an author, and we're going to talk to him about some very interesting works that he has done. Stephen Pease, welcome to JM Sunday. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Now I know that uh, I know that you had to get up very early in where you are, <laughs> and I appreciate that very much, and our listeners appreciate it. Uh, and I know that you uh, flew in from out of the country, and uh, yeah. you're uh, basically going to sleep sometime over the next week, maybe, right? <laughs> Perhaps after we get off the phone, I may uh, head back to bed. Okay, great. Well, I thank you for joining me this morning. Now, a number of years ago, you authored a compendium called The Golden Age of Jewish Achievement. And uh, it is a compendium of a culture, a people, and their stunning achievement, meaning the Jewish people. It is a remarkable book. I encourage everybody to get that. It is about 600 pages long, and it is a wealth of information. Now, you recently published another book, which is kind of like a follow-up. You'll tell us about that in a second, called The Debate Over Jewish Achievement, Exploring the Nature and Nurture of Human Accomplishments. And... Um, 
I guess you were kind of trying to figure out the why to the facts of what you presented in the first book. Please tell us what prompted you to write the uh, the first book, the compendium, and this second book. Um, I'll try to make it succinct. I, I, the first book came out of the fact that I've had Jewish friends and acquaintances since kindergarten. Um, I lived in Miami, Florida for six years working in a business that had been started by a Jew and all of our commission sales force uh, marketing people were Jewish. I got a, some of my best friends in life came out of that experience. I lost one not long ago. So out of that experience, I had a hunch that Jews were disproportionate high achievers. Namely, if I could get a list of the 100 most important physicists, the 100 most important conductors, blah, 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 blah knew that, um, and identify which people amongst them were Jewish, I would, uh, I, I would prove my hunch, which was that Jews are disproportionately high achievers. Now, what happened, this all kind of began about 2002 when I, <laughs> I, I ended up with my last job for which I was paid anything, and I had some time, and the Internet was there, and I could do research that never would have been possible when I first developed a hunch back in the 60s and the 70s. So I spent time digging in, and what really, I mean, I was astonished. I thought it would be high achievement, but I had no idea the magnitude that I would discover as I kind of did the work. And then a friend of mine who's Jewish knew what I was doing and introduced me to Rabbi Gerald Kushner. Kushner took an interest in the work, encouraged me, uh, tried to get his agent to be my agent, tried to get his publisher to publish me. Um, and he, he really liked it. And he asked me one day on the phone, Steve, I think you're going to be able to prove the what, uh, namely the magnitude of the achievements. Don't you think the more important question is why? So I went ahead and completed the book, discovered that no publishing house in the United States was interested in publishing it, so I published it myself, uh, and that was about 2009, 2010. I was fortunate. David Brooks picked it up and did a column about this, my book and Startup Nation at the same time, and that, that really drove some interest. And in the first book, I spent one chapter out of 26 talking about my notions of why it had happened. Um, and th- th- there was a good deal of interest in, in that and in the book. Um, but I didn't push the question of the why. And, of course, in 2004 to 2005, the Human Genome Project was completed and then a huge volume of work from 2005 on, you know, the whole 3 billion base pairs of DNA and what it all means and what, are, what, what traits are genetic, you know, what physical conditions are genetic, an, an immense body of research. And so I thought I wanted to dig into that because the two prevailing theories that matter, there are about 11 or 12 different theories that I cover in that second book, but the two that really matter are nature and nurture. Is this a genetic phenomena or is this a cultural phenomena, for lack of a better term? Right. So I, I had to explore other cultures, look at high achievers in other cultures, and then look at the Jewish people and look at their values using, using what they say about themselves. I didn't make these up, but cultural values. Um, and uh, I, had to, I had to take those ten theories on and, and explain why I thought they didn't really work. And when the day was done, I conclude culture matters more than genetics. I'm, I'm not an absolutist. I don't say that genetics don't matter. They do. But ironically, the, one, of the, one of the genetic phenomena, meaning a relatively high IQ amongst Ashkenazis, appears to me to have been driven by a cultural phenomena, namely the mandatory education that rabbinic Judaism established in you know, 70 AD after the Roman conquest. So I just felt, from my standpoint, human achievement matters. I often, when I'm giving a presentation, I mention Falk and Sabin, because as a kid in Spokane, I couldn't swim in the public swimming pools in the summertime because of polio. Right. And Falk and Sabin solved that problem, never got the Nobel Prize for it. But that's what I mean by human achievement. There are lots of them, 
And I think we really, particularly in this age when we're kind of feeling like uh, inequality and low grades and performance issues, that we really do need to understand cultures that encourage people to become high achievers, and we need to encourage more of it. That's how we're going to solve issues like global warming and lots of other issues, by, by smart, motivated people kind of devoting a big part of their lives to right. pursuing and that, that's fascinating concepts. Now, I, I didn't say this when I introduced you, and I want to just uh, mention it to the public because I think it's it's interesting that you, in fact, are not Jewish. Uh, so it's interesting that uh, you particularly, uh, you know, wrote about the Jewish people, and like you just explained, you know, where where it came from, your notions back in the '60s. Um, but it must have been very interesting experience writing about this and doing the research when people found out you're you're not jewish and and said like what you know why what what's what's going on here but you know certainly the the work that you did is uh you know is amazing now when you talk about you you said some very interesting and uh, important things here the idea of nature versus nurture dna versus uh uh you know culture and and learning of course, within Judaism, when we have uh, a lineage that goes back thousands of years, there is obviously literally DNA incorporated in many of our, uh, uh, our, our bodies, as you, as you said, you, you know, the Human Genome Project, and the, uh, of course we know about the, the different uh, markers in DNA that, that can unite people, and we can uh, find common ancestors to huge segments of the Jewish population going back thousands of years. Uh, so that that puts that in there, but in a way, is that um, it, it's only part of it, of course, because if someone did not grow up in a Jewish culture just because they were Jewish, do you think that uh, by and large the people would still come out and be, you know, top of everything? Uh, you know, it's one thing to be genetically Jewish, but like you said, the culture is what's important—that culture of understanding and education. Sure, sure. I mean, you know. Um Orthodox, Reform, conservative Jews are high achievers, they have high education rates, but so too are secular Jews who have retained their cultural values. Um, it, it, it's the culture, like I say, that I think really kind of matters here. Um, the, the, the Genome Project was fascinating for me. I, I was, it was part of the pleasure of writing the book, was kind of dig in on this. And one of the things that most people, I don't think, have yet digested is that the Genome Project has revealed that nature and nurture are really not a dichotomy. They really interact. Right. We can now see how um, monkeys, for example, are genetically predisposed, let's say, to be cold and distant or warm and friendly. Mm-hmm. And they've done experiments swapping the infants of mothers who are predisposed one way or the other to see what happens to the infants. And what they discover is that being with the mother who's warm and nurturing changes the genetics of that child and makes him or she um, also warm or vice versa, cold and distant. And moreover... Uh, on some of this, they've discovered that this this isn't just a one generation phenomenon. It can go on three, four, five generations, and that's as far as they've really had a chance to study it. Yet. So it's pretty clear that nature and nurture interact. Right. In fact, to the extent the Ashkenazis may have higher IQs, and there's a good body of evidence to say that the Ashkenazi IQ is maybe on average about ten points higher than white Europeans and Americans. My view is the reason that occurred was because of mandatory education. Interesting. Um, that's very interesting. Oh, I, by the way, I'm Ashkenazi. Um, <laughs> Stephen <laughs> Stephen Pease is my guest, the author of the debate over Jewish achievement. Now, uh, just to define it a little bit more, when you talk about culture, 
Uh, are you talking about the, the literal culture and day-to-day um, activities of a culture, for instance, within Judaism, or are you talking about the fact that somebody who is Jewish will know that she or he is Jewish, uh, f- whatever level of observance, but they'll know that, uh, they'll feel that, there'll be a, a tie-in. We, you know, we, we talk about even the person that is the least religious or observant person has that small spark uh, of Judaism within them, within them, and is tied to the community. Is that what you mean by culture, or is it um, immersed in Jewish culture uh, on a day-to-day basis necessarily? Uh, I don't know that I can make the, the distinction. Um, uh, one way I view it is what what moves you, what drives you, what would you be willing to die for, what really matters in your life, um, and you see in the Jews a certain combination. Of cultural values, ethical monotheism, a sense of progress in the beginning, you know, in Genesis as I refer to it, free will, choice, action, accountability, rationality. I've got about, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 of these cultural values that Jews have expressed in their own writing about how they see themselves. And when I look at them and think about them, they help to me to explain why they became high achievers, you know, and and in part, it's environmental in the sense of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism also, to some extent, go certain kind of cultural values, you know, being being independent, uh, right. not relying upon a large organization, all those kinds of things. That, that, what I'm saying is, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Well, what I'm saying is when you look at these, the, the, one of the most interesting things to me about how this thing unfolded was when you look at these values, which some would call bourgeois, I mean, they're, they're, in some ways they're middle-class values, they're, they're hard work, they're family, there's healthy diet, um, there's belief in the future, you know, trying to make a difference, um, be, being willing to have a different point of view with somebody else. Those are bourgeois values, but they're similar to the values that Confucians hold and to other groups of high achievers. I mean, Jews are astonishingly high achievers, but they're not the only ones on the planet. Right. Um, and there are others out there, and when you look across that range of people who've been high achievers, you see a lot of these same values. The, the, the mix may be different, you know, the proportions may be different, but a lot of these values are shared. Right, of course. I mean, if you take a look at the Jewish population compared to the world population, as, as you know, it's a minuscule percentage. Uh, what you're pointing out, and I think what uh, a lot of people you know, over the, uh, over the centuries have, have known, but you've really put it together uh, nicely, is that proportionately, like you just said, uh, we are higher achievers than uh, yeah. than the general population, and that's what you're looking at. You know, you would expect a certain percentage of Jews to be in any particular uh, job, any particular um, area. Maybe not sports, but <laughs> any particular area. Well, yeah, but it's it, but, but there are more there. There are a number of Jewish Super Bowl uh, ring holders. You know, you never <laughs> expect that. Um, so they're more often in. They're more often involved in management. <laughs> right, right. Or, or ownership. I, I remember one time, uh, it was very funny, just aside, one time there was a, a news report about a, a, a basketball game at Yeshiva University. This goes back a number of years. And, uh, Yeshiva University won the, the game, I guess, uh, and, and the commentator on, on radio said, you know, Yeshiva University, uh, players, Usually known for their pre-med or science degrees, you know, went into there. But yeah, actually, YU has has quite a good team now. But um, okay, so uh, you, you mentioned something interesting also about um, uh, the the anti-Semitism over the num- uh, over the millennia. Uh, all right, l- 
one thing that we have, I, I think, that, that maybe other cultures do, maybe other religions do, maybe not, as having, as I'm sure you know, we have the Torah, which uh, our, our belief was given thousands of years ago, and it is true today as it was then, and it gives us, I think, a worldview that might be different um, than other groups, because we have what you just said, that, that look to the future, that past, the history, it all comes in together as one through each generation. So by having that future, by having that, that worldview, that look ahead also, it's like, well, then we have to, we have to survive, but we have to do well. Why not? You know, I mean, why not be a part of that? Uh, the other point is, you know, sometimes I guess we've been forced into certain positions because of anti-Semitism. It's a little ironic. Uh, a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, Jews are good in business and in money and in finance. But if you look at history, going back hundreds of years, uh, even in the anti-Semitic regimes, Jews were always trusted with mm-hmm. money. Uh, unfortunately, sure. became a, a, a stigma. You know, the tax collectors. But you know, think I about know. it. Why, why were they tax collectors in anti-Semitic regimes? Um, because they were trusted. So it kind yep. of became a vicious cycle. Uh, but Absolutely. you know, that, that that's also part of it. Absolutely. And, and you know, really, the, the phenomena that I describe in that first book is a relatively recent phenomena. You know, if you go back in history, the Jews who were high achievers in history were rarely scientists, rarely financiers. They were philosophers. Authors, things of that, you know, Christ, for example. Right. Um, and but it was it was when Napoleon convened the Grand Sanhedrin in Paris in what, 1806, something like that, and asked Jews if they wanted to be citizens because they were at the time, of course, generally in ghettos all over Europe. And he asked them would they be loyal to France, and ultimately they said yes. And he basically emancipated them. And with that came the reform movement and the move for Jews to kind of get into all kinds of domains of high achievement that they otherwise probably would not. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's this history. And I do think, going back to a point you made earlier, I think anti-Semitism has driven Jews in some curious ways. It goes with this idea that I don't think we learn as much from our successes and from the easy life as we do from hardship. I think that the big lessons we learn are when we're challenged, and 2,000 years of being challenged, I mean... Jews being dispersed all over the world with education were able to communicate with each other, and therefore they could trade with each other, and they could do things that almost no other group could do in that era, because if you were English and you lived in England, that didn't mean that you could trade with the Italians. Right. Jews were kind of these middlemen who also had some skills in finance, uh, and they, they, could, they could move goods and finance the movement of goods, and they knew value, they could see value. So, you know, it's another case of how this combination of long-term cultural values and the environment in which they function. They also had to be rational and tolerant. If you're doing business across 12 time zones, uh, it doesn't do you any good to act like you're the you, you're the brightest guy in the room and <laughs> right. you know better than anybody else because you are not likely to get much business if you approach the world that way. It, it, I was in Amsterdam a couple of months ago, and I was you know the golden age of the Dutch is a remarkable period. They I mean that's where Spinoza uh, lived. Um, and I asked the guide that we had who was very good. Why do you think that the Amsterdam was such a tolerant place because it has a long history of being very tolerant, dating back to the Dutch East India Company, Dutch West right. She said it's because we were traders. We had to be tolerant if we're going to go to Japan and develop a relationship in Japan where we're the only people who can trade with the Japanese from a small island off the shore of Japan. Yeah, I mean, the diaspora exposed Jews to cultures all over the world, and they couldn't very well be you know, kind of condescending about that, or it would have been 
Pretty, pretty rotten. Right. Uh, whether we liked it or not, we were kind of put in our place, and we knew what we could do and what we couldn't do, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, figured, you know, make the best of it and be as best yep. as you can be within that. It's interesting because, uh, you know, we, we think of achievement in very positive ways. Of course, you have in your compendium list of people uh, – Seems uh, sometimes we're uh, we're top in some areas we don't yeah. want to be top of. Yeah, but uh, you know, I refer anybody in the United States that knows the history of organized yeah, crime, sure. unfortunately, you know, yeah. might know some names. But that's only a minor, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a minor it thing. A, yeah, I mean, I felt in that first book if I was really going to be comprehensive, I needed to treat that subject. Right. Um, and so I did. And and there's look, there's clear examples of that. But by the same token, it's smaller, it's relatively smaller for the Jewish people, I think, than it is for most others. And partly right. that's because the cultural values, you know, achieve and move forward and put up with it instead of taking advantage of other people. Exactly, the, the value system. You know, I, I've met people over the years, and I'm sure you have, uh, where you, you find they're in a certain position, uh, have achieved something, and you may not even realize that they're Jewish, uh, mm-hmm. and then you realize that that they are, and, and it's like, well, I never would have thought of that, but then it you know, kind yeah. of puts it together. And again, I, I yeah. certainly don't want to minimize or, or take any, you know, elitist uh, uh, attitude here that, that uh, you know, we're, we're the only ones who have this. It is, again, like you said, a proportional uh, number for sure, you know, but there are groups out there, and I'm sure you could uh, look to certain factors within many communities that would point to why uh, they might have certain high achievers within Certain areas yeah. or certain parts of the world, but yes, yeah. look, I'll, I'll be the first to, to say it. We we do believe that, uh, you know. Again, we have we have, like I said before, we have the Torah. We have something that unites every single Jewish person. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I'm not talking. Other religions have the same thing, but you know, again, we're talking about Judaism. We have this, which, you know, when, like you mentioned before uh, about traders who uh, could had to communicate across time zones. You know, you, you have people who can go to any Jewish community and they can walk into a synagogue or speak to somebody in the Jewish community and instantly have that, that absolute base of communication already set there. The, the foundation yep. is already the same. You, you talk sure. the same uh, language. I don't necessarily mean Hebrew, but the same uh, world outlook, the same history. Everything is the same. And uh, So you're already starting with that. Uh, and that's part of the sure. culture, of course. Sure, sure. Absolutely. You know, and... Uh, I'll give you another example from another culture. Mormons. Mm-hmm. Mormons are disproportionately CEOs and senior executives of corporations wherever they exist, and they have been for a very long time. Um, they were, what, two of the nine or ten uh, Republican candidates for the nomination four years ago. Right. Mitt Romney, a Mormon, sure. uh, was the one who was selected to run. And, and it, that's a phenomenon that cannot possibly be genetic. You know, that religion is less than 200 years old. It's mostly made up of converts, mostly middle-class converts who kind of came into the religion. You know, they, they proselytize all over the world to right. bring in new converts. But um, they have very, very strong family values. They believe in education. They give kids at an early age the opportunity to stand up and speak in front of an audience. Um, they kind of inculcate a sense of values that is in many ways similar to Jewish values. And therefore, in my view, they tend to be high achievers. Um, and, and you, know, you look at the Asians, you see in them kind of this sense of hard work and the importance of hard work, a sense of responsibility, five or six generations forward and back for what you do. Um, you know, that you've got to make a difference and you have some accountability there. Right. And, of course, now it's kind of been unleashed since, uh, since Mao died mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of spur economic ad- 
advances all over the Asian world. But before then, even before then, the offshore Chinese, the ones who lived in Hong Kong, the ones who lived in the United States, the ones who lived in Canada, were also high achievers. Confucian values have made a hell of a difference. Right, absolutely. Now, of course, it is interesting when people, some people that study the DNA and whatnot and looking at our history... You know, our history includes the, um, the, the, the knowledge of the ten lost tribes uh, after the dispersion. Uh, you never know which groups were influenced, uh, either DNA or culturally, uh, by the groups. And if, again, we're looking at you know, our group, you never know who's out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, I don't think I've touched on this yet, but um, Botticini and Eckstein are two academics. One is Italian, the other one is Israeli. Mm-hmm. And they wrote... Papers that I read back in the early 2000s ultimately led to a book called The Chosen Few, which is out there and everybody can get it. But The Chosen Few said something I'd never really heard before, which was when the Romans destroyed the temple and dispersed the Jews, rabbinic Judaism took over from the Sadducees. The Sadducees yes. were wiped out. The Romans didn't trust. Right, basically. Um, and rabbinic Judaism is what mandated education. And I think probably, and others believe this as well, it had to do with the diaspora. How are you going to keep that religion and culture alive across all those time zones with people that are spread out all over the world unless they reduce to writing mm-hmm. what is most important in their lives? And, of course, that led to the oral law becoming not oral but written, and it kind of became the Talmud. So they mandated education as being a vital value, but, but it was not cheap. You know, you didn't have printing presses back then. That's right. Uh, it was mostly a people of farmers doing agricultural things at, at, in 70 A.D., uh, but by about 400, 500 A.D., almost no Jews were farmers, except maybe the few that remained in Palestine. Right. Um, education gave them skills to do things in conjunction with the diaspora. Now, by the same token, the data seem to suggest that the numbers of Jews in the world diminished substantially. I mean, you could see where a million Jews were killed by the Romans. Of course. But the numbers sure. went down much, much, much greater than that. And I think the view of the chosen, you know, Botticini exile is that the Jews kind of self-selected for motivation and perhaps talent, and the ones who were less motivated to, to, to give their kids an education, look, I need the kids in the house, I need the kids to go out in the fields and work, you know, right. I can't afford this, you know. Well, they tended to opt out. You know, they may have opted out originally for Christianity, they may have opted out later for Islam, but you ended up culling, you know, almost a Darwinian natural selection for the best and the brightest in the Ashkenazi population over time. Um, and, and and that's I mean that's the argument the the nature argument is look these guys have higher IQs and that gives them all these talents doesn't work though if you look at the hard data um, even when you look at an IQ differential if in fact it really exists you can't account for why it is the Jews have won a hundred times more Nobel prizes than they should they right. should right absolutely you know, you, you know by by the by the IQ difference they should win six times more not a hundred times more right um, so. Even the guy who was the leading advocate of nature, British retired British professor, um, when he wrote his last book about the Jews and high achievement, I think he did the math, which I did, which said, given that IQ differential, what percentage should they have earned of all these different kinds of distinctions? And he discovered it was orders of magnitude greater than that. Right. And for a guy who had historically denied culture, all of a sudden he was left saying things that sound a lot like culture, a lot about motivation, a lot about drive, a lot about values, things of that nature. And so he kind of backed off in this theory. Richard Lynn, retired professor in England, who uh, I think discovered culture matters too. Fascinating. I I tell you, you've done your research. You know a lot about Jewish history, which obviously you had to in order to be able to put this together. Uh, The book is called The Debate Over Jewish Achievement, Exploring the Nature and Nurture of Human Accomplishment. And uh, there's a lot of very uh, 
there are a lot of technical parts in here in the sense of you bring in you know DNA studies and uh, um, but it's but it's a relatively easy reading you know for anybody to yeah. pick this up and there's a wealth of information and I think it's important not only um, for the Jewish people it's uh, very interesting in general to read the conclusions that you have here and the ideas that you have here because uh, it does apply you know, to all cultures and uh, to a certain extent. Um, and again, the, uh, the the compendium, if people can get that uh, uh, and and look for that, just you know, quite fascinating, quite interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, yes. I, I, let me kind of come back to what you're just saying there. Yes, I did this in part because Jews have been very important in my life, and I have a, a warm, warm spot in my heart for them. I mean, some of my closest friends have been Jewish. <laughs> but what's driving me as well is to encourage human achievement. I really think it's important for us to understand why people become high achievers because that's how we solve problems. That's how we make life better for everybody. So part of the drive for me to do this book is not just my affection for Jews, but it's also what are we going to do to encourage more people to be high achievers because that's how we make the world better for all of us. Absolutely. That's a, that's a phenomenal point. Uh, finally, let me ask you, uh, this may be a I don't know, difficult question is the right term, but as somebody who's not Jewish, when when you began to study this and have the ideas, how did, how did this uh, view, how did this um, the knowledge that you gained affect you personally? If you, if you don't mind sharing that a little bit, and how you looked at um, yourself and and maybe religious in general compared to Judaism. Well, no, but yeah, like you said, that's a that's a hard question. It's hard to know sometimes what the greatest influences are. Right. Um, I mean, I do know that. I don't know, if, if I had to say who are my ten closest friends, probably four of them or something like that, three or four of them would be Jewish. Disproportionate, um, right? You didn't include that in your list of friends no, of no, Stephen no, Pease. No, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I, when I was in Miami, Florida, uh, working for a real estate information company, David Nitzka was an Israeli who immigrated to the United States after the, the War of Independence. He fought mm-hmm. in Madonna, and he came over here. He had to come over for an education. You know, there, there was... So many young Jews who needed an education, and the educational establishment was not right. great enough. So he, he came to New York, and then he ended up working with me in the Real Estate Data Inc., company I was a part of. And so he shared with me a lot about his life, a lot about his values, how it came to be so, and he became a very close friend. He also invested in my venture capital fund. He and he since passed away about two years ago. Mm, sorry. But he, 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 he was an international guy. I mean, all of a sudden I discovered I'm a little kid from Spokane. Here's this guy traveling all over the world, and he has relationships with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. And he's a very good businessman. And uh, he was just a, an intellectual delight. Right. Uh, Ed, Ed Stolman, the guy who uh, invented the Dove Bar, but was a serial entrepreneur, he's the guy who took the interest in the work and, and knew Kushner and brought Kushner in. Hmm. Uh, I, mean, it, some, I suppose you could say it kind of unleashed imagination about, you know, you can do more than just kind of accept the status quo. Right. You can Absolutely. make a difference. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me. The time went by very quickly. There was so much we could talk about, but I encourage everyone to go out and get this book, The Debate Over Jewish Achievement. It's available at all the book sources, and uh, and, and read this through. It's a, a remarkable uh, edition that you've put together, and I appreciate you joining me this morning, Stephen L. Pease. Uh, wh- wh- very quickly, what do you do, uh, if you don't mind my asking, when, when you're not up at the ungodly hours talking to somebody on the radio? Well, I've got uh, the other big thing that takes a lot of my time is is Russia. Uh, I've got a thirty year history of being involved in Russia, ah. and uh, had a successful business there 
in the 80s, 90s. Uh, and then from that, I joined a, an enterprise fund. The U.S. government put aside $1.3 billion to help the Soviet world be, develop a market economy. And the largest fund of that money was about $330 million bucks that went into Russia. Wow. Uh, and I had tried to raise money from them to support my earlier venture, and I thought they were fools. Uh-huh. So in 2000, 2001, I joined that board. They solved the problem, not because of me. You know, other people had solved the problem. But I became chairman of the U.S.-Russia Investment Fund in 2006. Oh, okay. uh, I still am. I, we're, we're winding it down. But then we had to come back to the Congress and to the State Department uh, and say what we wanted to do with the 300 and some million dollars that we, we yielded from the investments that we made over there. And half of that is now in a permanent foundation, which I co-chair with Ambassador Jim Collins. In fact, that's, that's why I was in Moscow last week. Uh-huh. Um, and what we try to do is encourage um, economic advancement of the rule of law. Namely, we're really trying to encourage entrepreneurship, and we're really trying to encourage the rule of law in various forms in Russia. And sometimes that's easy, and sometimes that's hard. Of course. Right now, it's, right now it's pretty hard. It's hard. Well, I went to a major event in Moscow on Thursday night, which was kind of all the liberals coming together to make awards to people who've been doing things important for civil society, for discourse, for human rights, things of that nature. And it was remarkable. I mean, it was a truly moving thing to sit there with Chabayas and some of the leaders of liberal thinking in Russia that are moving forward. Wow. So we're in it for the long run in, in Russia, uh, trying to help um, promote education, trying to promote entrepreneurship, trying to encourage the rule of law, things like that. I just right. choose up a lot of my time. Absolutely. I know you touched upon it in your book, but you could probably write another book on this, this whole debate on Jewish achievement, uh, just looking at Soviet Jewry, which, uh, as you know, you oh. know, for decades was uh, was not uh, uh, able to to uh, practice its culture, but maybe that you know even helped spur more achievement. But that we'll have to leave for another time because our time is short. Yeah, Steve, no, I'm, Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm giving that a little thought because Jews are disproportionate in physics. Yes, you know, the, the Nobel prizes that were earned by Russia, Russia, yes, were predominantly by by Jews. Absolutely, most of whom left. The left the country when they could, and they're now in Israel or they're in the U.S. Exactly. Uh, Stephen Pease, thank you again so much for joining us here on JM Sunday. Uh, my, my thanks to you for writing these books, for joining us, and I wish you continued success. We hope to have you back here on JM Sunday in the future. My pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Rich. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 8.51 in the morning. We're going to get set to close up uh, the show. We're going to hear a little bit of Milha Shemi Life and the Miami Boys Choir right here on JM Sunday. Of his nation's fall And then no 
going back a number of years. I know that we uh, played that earlier also. I wanted to add that into our second uh, second hour here as we get set to wrap up the show. Uh, I posted a question last night on, uh, on my page as to whether I should play the French National Anthem in commemoration in, in, uh, memory, commemoration of the attacks on uh, uh, in recognition what as would... Um, of the attacks on Friday night in Paris, and uh, overwhelming support said uh, support for that. Overwhelmingly, people said yes. So we're going to end up with, as they did in Israel, by the way, um, 2,500 people got together and sang the uh, French national anthem and Hatikva. We're going to do that. Uh, whether other countries support uh, Israel in its time of need in the same way, 
Uh, the answer, unfortunately, in, in most places, it's no. But that doesn't mean that um, we can't show the support and show people that we do care uh, in in what has been going on and, and uh, you know hope for the uh, hope for the best for the future. Uh, my thanks again to uh, the chief, uh, the, the head of the conference of European rabbis, Rabbi Lewin. My thanks to uh, to Dove uh, uh, Mizell from United uh, Rescue in Jersey City, and my thanks to Stephen Pease for joining me this morning here on JM Sunday. And uh, we will finish up, as I said, with uh, the two anthems from France and Hatikva. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Great program continues all day long right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.